now. Uh, hey, this is Jared McElroy here with W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm uh, looking forward to getting into some really good information about uh, the early 1900s. Um, whatever. Okay. So then you hit. Chapter five, proof in the pudding. This is the way life works. Things grow and change, or at least things seem to change. Sometimes the change is in name only. Sometimes there's a fundamental shift. Most times it's a bit of both. In the mid 1700s, after Cotton Mather's death and in the midst of the followers continuing, in the midst of his followers continuing his legacy, the new America entered what we now call the Enlightenment era. Enlightenment, what does that mean? Well, according to our pals, Merriam and Webster, enlightenment is defined as the act or means of enlightening, the state of being enlightened. Isn't it funny how every teacher has always told you not to define a word by using the word in the definition? Hey, next time, just say, if the folks who wrote the dictionary can do it, so can I. But to be enlightened just means to be informed, to be free from ignorance. So this new movement, the enlightenment, was megaphoning the fact that there was a new generation, a new era that, that knew more, better thinkers. And in America, the leader of this better thinkers movement was Mr. $100 Bill himself, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin started a club called the American Philosophical Society in 1743 in Philadelphia. It was modeled after the Royal Society in England and served as basically a club for smart white people, thinkers philosophers, and racists. See, in the Enlightenment era, light was seen as a metaphor for intelligence. Think, I see the light. And also, whiteness. Think opposite of dark. And this is what Franklin was bringing to America through his club of ingenious fools. And one of those walking contradictions was Thomas Jefferson. About Jefferson, you know how I said Gomez Eanes de Zerara was the world's first racist? Well, Thomas Jefferson might have been the, the world's first white person to say, I have black friends. I don't know if that's true, but I'm willing to make the bet. He was raised non-religious in a house where Native Americans were house guests and black people, those slaves, were his friends as far as he could tell. As a young man, he didn't think of them as less or consider slavery much at all. As a matter of fact, Jefferson didn't even really see them as slaves. It wasn't until he was older when his African friends started telling him about the horrors of slavery, including the terror in his own home, that he realized their lives were more different than he'd ever known. And how could they not be? His father owned the second largest number of enslaved people in Albemarle County, Virginia. And I don't know about you all, but I don't own my friends. As Thomas Jefferson grew up, he studied law to grapple with anti-racist thought. Yes, the slave owner was studying anti-racism. He eventually went on to build his own plantation in Charlottesville, Virginia, putting money over morals, a lesson learned from his father. Slavery wasn't about people, it was about profit, business. I often wonder if there were times on Jefferson's plantation when one of his slaves, one of his friends, taught him things he couldn't learn from the American Philosophical Society. And if so, if that particular slave was seen as someone, something different. 
like a super black. And if his, I have black friends was ever followed up with, you're not like the rest of them. And if, when Jefferson's friends came over, he had that slave showcase his intelligence or his talent or whatever special thing he thought only white people could do. Because up the coast in Boston, during the time that Jefferson was building his plantation, a young woman named Phyllis Wheatley was under a microscope for being special. Not like literally under a microscope. She was too big for that. Not microscopic at all. As a matter of fact, she was being studied not because she was small, but rather because she had an intellectual and creative bigness that white people couldn't believe. She was a poet. But before she was a poet, she was a young girl, a captive brought over on a ship from Senegambia. She was purchased by the Wheatley family, who wanted a daughter to replace the one they'd lost. Phyllis would, would be that stand-in. And because she was a daughter, she was actually never a working slave and was even homeschooled. By 11, she'd written her first poem. By 12, she could read Greek and Latin classics, English literature, and the Bible. That same year, she also published her first poem. By 15, she'd written a poem about wanting to go to Harvard, which was all male and all white. By 19, she began gathering her poems into a collection, a book. By now you know there was no way she was going to get published, at least not without jumping through some serious hoops. So in 1772, John Wheatley, Phyllis's adoptive father, got 18 of the smartest men in America together in Boston so that they could test her. See, if a black person could really be as intelligent and literate as Phyllis, as they were, and of course she answered every question correctly and proved herself human. Still, no one would publish her. I mean, those 18 men knew she was brilliant, but none of them were publishers. And even if they were, why would they risk their, their businesses by publishing a black girl in the midst of a racist world where poetry was for, for and by rich white people? But Wheatley's achievements still proved a point, that black people weren't dumb. And this information became ammo for people who were anti-slavery. People like Benjamin Rush, a physician from Philadelphia, who wrote a pamphlet saying that black people weren't born savages, but instead were made savages by slavery. Record scratch. Pause. Okay, let's just get something straight, because this is an argument you will hear over and over again through life. I hope not, but probably. To say that slavery, or in, in today's time, poverty, makes black people animals or subhuman is racist. I know, I know. It seems to be coming from a good place. Like when people say, you're cute for a, insert physical attribute that shouldn't be used as an insult, but is definitely used as an insult because it doesn't fit with the strange and narrow European standard of beauty. It's underhanded and still doesn't recognize you for you. It's the difference between an assimilationist and an anti-racist. Word check. So, when it came to Phyllis Wheatley, an assimilationist like Benjamin Rush argued that she was intelligent only because she'd never really been a slave, i.e. slavery makes you dumb. Newsflash, Wheatley was intelligent because she had the opportunity to learn and wasn't tortured every day of her life. And even people who were tortured every day of their lives and did not have the opportunity to go to school still found ways to think and create. Still, 
still found ways to be human in their own way. Although their poetry looked different, although they did not often have the opportunity to write their poetry. See how that works, Mr. Rush, Mr. Enlightened, huh? Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. While Rush was working to make this argument, Wheatley was over in London being trotted around like a superstar. The British would go on to publish her work. Not only would they publish her a year after slavery was abolished in England, they would use her and Rush's pamphlet as a way to condemn American slavery. Let me explain why that was such a big deal. It's basically your mother telling you she's not mad, but she's disappointed in you. Remember, America was made up of a bunch of Europeans, specifically British people. They still owned America. It was their home away from home, hence New England. The British disapproval applied pressure to the American slavery system, which was the American economic system. And in order for America to feel comfortable with continuing slavery, they had to get away from, break free of Britain once and for all. <laughs> 